All right, looks like we're good. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see everyone here. If you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 45. We'll be reading from Psalm chapter 45. And while people turn over there to Psalm 45 and get to their seats, I just want to stir all of your hearts to just a uh, two reasons for, for thanksgiving. So last week during this hour, our, our beloved Pastor James Jennings gave us a view of a difficult portion of Scripture in Judges. And I just want to stir your hearts to praise God and give gratitude towards God for putting within His Word just absolute honesty. He does not sugarcoat history and sweep the difficult parts underneath the rug. He tells us difficult, difficult, hard to look at things about the depravity of human beings. He puts it in his word and I just praise God that he's, he's so real with us in his scriptures. Other holy books, I just don't see that level of graphicness. And to me, it is an affirmation, a seal of authenticity that the author of the Bible is not just men because the, the Bible indicts men. Even the chosen people, even Israel has to have all this just shame and like look at what they, they do and how they act and how they betray their God. And so, number one, just praise God that His Word contains such honesty. And number two, y'all, praise God that He's given us faithful elders and pastors and teachers who have not shrunk from declaring the whole counsel of God to us. Guys, he wasn't preaching verse by verse. It wasn't like that was just the next thing within his reading. And he's like, oh, can't wriggle away from it. I guess I got to do this. He chose a hard passage and said, I'm going to give this. And I'm not trying to blow your head up over here, James. I just sincerely do appreciate it. I've been in a lot of churches. I have never heard someone kind of have the, the courage and the guts to say, I'm preaching from that text from a Judges 19 text. So that was, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And guys, I would just stir all your hearts to gratitude and appreciation for having faithful elders that do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, even the difficult parts, the severe parts. Scripture does tell us to consider both the kindness and the severity of our God. Last week, there was some severe stuff. This week, y'all, I have something that's just such a kindness. It's such a window into some, It's marvelous. <laughs> and God puts both inside of his word. He puts things that are hard to look at and things that are just absolutely glorious to look at. So we're going to be reading from Psalm 45. Psalm 45. I'm reading from the ESV. I will read the passage and then pray. But verse 1, I'll read the superscription, the little title here says, your throne, O God, is forever. It says, to the choir master, according to lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most Handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness, and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Verse 10 of Psalm 45. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes, interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have given us this book. This is your word. Your Holy Spirit inspired human authors to write things. And before us this morning is something that you've written for our instruction. Lord, such repeated themes, gladness, joy. Oh, Father, please, by the power of your Spirit, through the preaching of your word, exalt the person of Jesus Christ and let your people here this morning, myself included, just be fed and stirred up and reminded of what's true about you and what's true about us as your people. Feed us from your word this morning. I do pray, help me with my mind, my lips, and help the people sitting here in their seats with their ears and their hearts and their minds. Lord, that something would be happening in the invisible realm where it's not just a guy talking from a book, but your Holy Spirit is ministering to people in a felt way. Lord, you can do that. We ask that you would. In Jesus' name, we ask it in one accord. Amen. So Psalm 45. I'm just going to get started from verse 1. We see our author there. If you have a New King James Version, then some of the, the thrill and the fun and the surprise is sort of spoiled for you because the title and superscription in your New King James Bible just gives you the answer to some of the questions that I'm going to be asking. But everyone else with whatever other translation, your, if you have an ESV, it says your throne, O God, is forever. Um, but <laughs> the New King James Version just tells you the answer. Um, but let's just look here. It says, To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. The human author here is saying, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. He cannot contain himself. He says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And this just kind of makes me think of 1 Peter 1.21 where it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. It's important to remember that kind of thing when we're reading these things. We could just think that it's just some uh, historic song from an ancient peoples about some uh, kind of anonymous ancient king. No, the Holy Spirit wrote this. He inspired a human author. The human author is basically letting you know, I'm under divine inspiration. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. 
I address my verses. Who is he writing this to? For the first verses from 1 to the first part of 9, he's just talking to the king. He lets you know, I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So we have to ask ourselves the question, who, who's the king? There are different commentators that have tried to place King Solomon here and say, oh, he, he, he kind of fits. There's a couple of reasons why I just do not see King Solomon fitting in this section. And the, the first of which is just that you got all this like war imagery and he's riding out victoriously. and He's got a sword and he's got a bow. But King Solomon lived during times of peace. We're told in numerous places that he had peace on every side, that God just gave him this protection, this security, this peace. So for Solomon, for someone to write a song about Solomon marrying the princess of Egypt or whatever, um, it just doesn't fit. And so it's not Solomon. Again, I already mentioned New King James right on the title. It sits there and it tells you, basically just says a song about the Messiah and his bride. Kind of spoils the fun for you of having to like find it for yourself. When I first was reading this um, last week, I, I didn't have the, the NKJV uh, solve it for me and I got to just have that childlike thrill of looking at it and being like, this this sounds like a beautiful messianic psalm about King Jesus and his bride, the church. And sure enough, it is exactly that. And to stumble upon that for yourself and feel like you discovered it for yourself, I can't tell you the thrill of it. It was so exciting to me. But it's confirmed by Hebrews chapter 1. You could turn there if you'd like. You don't have to, but I'll read from you just from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, the New Testament is the best and most authoritative commentary on the Old Testament. So I consulted my commentary here, and it told me what the psalm is about without a shadow of a doubt. Hebrews 1, 7 through 9. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's quoting from right there, from verses 6 and 7 of our Psalm 45 in Hebrews chapter 1. So we know, we could rest assured, you can't indict me with spiritualizing or making this about Jesus when it's not. It's about Jesus on the authority of Hebrews chapter 1. So just rest easy as we apply all of this stuff to Jesus and to his bride. And it's... Oh, he says it right in verse 1. He says, this is a pleasing theme. The Holy Spirit inspires the human author. And it's not with a sharp rebuke this time around. So often, the inspiration from the Holy Spirit is that the people of God are needing to be told something very strong and sharp and corrective. But this is a pleasing theme that the Holy Spirit has given for the human author to write. I don't know if it's David. I don't know if it's just one of the sons of Korah. It's not entirely clear. But the human author, nonetheless, is writing this pleasing theme about this kind of purposely anonymous king. I don't think this fits anyone from Israel. It's just, it, just <laughs> it has to be a prophetic foreshadowing looking forward to the king, the perfect king, the best king, the true and better David, the true and better Solomon. It doesn't fit anybody else because of certain language used. I mean, verse 2, here we are, it says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. I mean, if that's about David or Solomon, then the author's indulging in a little bit of flattery there, right? It's telling him, you're the most handsome of the sons of men. But if we're applying that to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's absolutely true. No more beautiful, handsome human being ever walked the face of the planet than this Jesus. Verse 2 says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. And then notice the first feature when mentioning his beauty, his handsomeness, it says grace is poured upon your lips. His lips. And it's not about the 
shape of Jesus' lips. It's about the grace that is upon his lips. It says, grace is poured upon your lips. And this, of course, brings to mind what is said about the Lord Jesus in Luke 4, 22. Listen. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Even his opponents, John 7, 46. He says, they're, they're sent to arrest him, these officers. It says, no one ever spoke like this man. John six sixty eight, <laughs> Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. He's the most handsome of the sons of men because of this gracious speech that's coming out of his lips. And I know you might think, well, Chris, how does this square with Isaiah 53? It says that he has no former majesty that we should look at him. Um, fair question. But I think that Psalm 53, when it's describing him, it's describing in Psalm 53, Jesus Christ in his form of a servant when he humbled himself, his pre-glorified state. And actually here in Psalm 45, we're getting to peek through this prophetic window into when he is exalted and glorified and people can look at him and they're no longer saying, oh, there's no form about him. There's no majesty. There is now majesty. He is now a king. He is now highly exalted. He's seen clearly and he's handsome. He's the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. That's another reason why this just don't fit with Solomon or David, because it's talking about being blessed forever. Verse 3, it says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse 4, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. So verse 3, verse 1 and 2, you've got this pleasing theme. You've got this beautiful man with beautiful speech. He's handsome. And then it pivots and it shows us, oh, this is the perfect man. He's, he's handsome. His speech is gracious. And yet... He is a warrior. He's not playing around. He is strong. The kids sing this song that I really like. Jesus, strong and kind. I love that. It's a good song. It's a children's song, but it's a good song because it's true. He's handsome. His speech is gracious. But he, look at verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So yes, he's a warrior, but there's splendor and majesty. He's not like Rambo, just all barbaric and blasting all of his enemies, and he's sweating and covered in dirt and blood. There's still splendor and majesty and nobility about him as he goes on this campaign that does involve bloodshed. This sword is not a decorative sword like you see in some of these English nobility where they just have these swords and they do their little things and they don't use those things. They're just there. God the Son, Jesus Christ, does not just have a decorative sword that he rides around with. It is a sword. I mean, Revelation talks about a sword coming out of his mouth. But listen to a couple of these verses that just confirm for us that this, this handsome God is don't let the handsomeness, don't let the gracious speech make you too comfortable. Exodus 15.3 The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Isaiah 42.13 The Lord will go forth like a warrior. 
He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. So verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. You can think of the imagery that we see in Revelation 19 where he is riding on a white horse. Listen to it. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, speaking of this King, this Messiah, this Jesus. John is seeing this. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then it says, and on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's faithful, he's true. In righteousness, he judges and make war, makes war. And you see how this harmonizes so well. In verse 4, it talks about the cause that he rises out for. It says, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. This king is not just some kind of tyrant who might makes right and is just slamming everyone down because he wants to. He's principled. He has a cause that he rides for and it's a good cause. He's righteous. We don't have to fear this king like he's going to do something unfair because he's perfectly, his cause is truth. He rides out for truth in a world full of deception and lies. He rides out for meekness in a world puffed up with pride. He rides out for righteousness in a world of wickedness. He's a good, good, majestic, splendid, handsome king, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Hebrews tells us this is about. You guys with me? <laughs> So verse 4, we're just looking at our king. That's what the text is doing. It's showing us who he is, what he's like, what he cares about, what he's busy with. He's doing things. He's riding. He's got weapons. He's armed. He's dangerous. Verse 5 says, your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. I want to read you this verse. I've, I've heard Pastor Tim reference this verse before. It's from Psalm 7. We have a multidisciplinary warrior here who has mastery of multiple weapons. Listen to Psalm 7, 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied. You always do this motion when you talk about this. He has bent and readied his bow. The sword is a very popular imagery here when thinking about Jesus, but I, this is just not as familiar to my own thinking of the Lord having a bow. He has prepared for him, the unrepentant man. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts his aim is impeccable he he's going to hit everyone that is unrepentant it's like they're heat-seeking arrows they're going towards those people that are unrepentant and they will all fall underneath his feet verse 5 every enemy that he targets falls under his feet his enemies are subdued beneath him Hebrews 1.13, New Testament commentary, consulting that again, just reinforces what we're seeing here in this song, this love song. It is a love song. That is its title. But it's a love song that involves a war campaign and justice being served. But listen to so what Hebrews 1.13 says. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, a footstool for your feet. And Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. But when Christ had offered 
for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He is a conquering, enthroned king who will have an absolutely certain victory. All of his enemies will fall. Verse 5 says, the peoples fall under you. And then verse 6 and 7 is where Hebrews quotes explicitly and says that it's the Son. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. That's comforting. God is not unfair in any way. He's perfectly righteous in his rule. It makes us angry if we see someone who has this favoritism because of their position of authority where they're able to get away with like horrible crimes or embezzlement or nepotism or whatever kind of president you want to look at or dictator or ruler and they're just getting away with stuff and it makes you angry. You're like, no one can take that guy. We don't have to worry about that with the Lord Jesus Christ. His scepter is a scepter of uprightness. It says in verse 7, you have loved righteousness. He's not just doing it because it's the right thing to do, but he loves it. He loves righteousness. And if you love righteousness, then of necessity you have to hate that which is contrary to righteousness, which... <laughs> In a sense, you want the king to be that way. You want him to hate wickedness. You don't want him to just kind of sweep stuff under the rug and be like, ah, a little bit of wickedness is allowed in my kingdom. But it's kind of scary news that the king, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Why is it scary news? Because we've got wickedness. Us. He hates the wickedness that exists in humanity. He doesn't look at any of it and say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's not too bad. He hates wickedness. And then it says in verse 7, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And this is, oh, I found this so precious. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He's this this warrior riding out, killing people. <laughs> and it says that God has anointed this Messiah with the oil of gladness. And it's gladness that's beyond anybody around him. No one in heaven, no one is more glad than the glorified Christ. He endures this suffering and sorrow and shame during his earthly ministry where he's taking the form of a servant. Yes, he is indeed the man of sorrows. But it says that he, he went through all that for the joy set before him. And here in verse 7, it says, with the oil your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Guys, do you think of Jesus in that way? Do you think of him as being a happy Savior? Do you ever think of Jesus as just having a radiant smile on his face toward you if you're his, if he saved you, if he's made you born again and brought you into his household and family? Are you still stuck with just a perpetual Man of sorrows with a scowl and a sadness on his face. Or, or an angry Savior who, he's not anointed with the oil of gladness. That sounds foreign to you. He's just always angry and disappointed in you because you keep messing up. You keep falling short. Is that how you think of him? Because this Psalm 45 wants to draw our attention to, and listen, I get it. The Bible talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, I'm not saying that's not the true picture of who Jesus is. I'm just saying it's just not the balanced and complete picture of who Jesus is. There is a gladness that is such gladness that it says he's more glad beyond anybody else around him. All the prophets, no one's more glad than Jesus. All the kings of Israel, all the patriarchs, no one's more glad than Jesus Christ, anointed with the oil of gladness beyond 
all of his companions. And listen to this verse from Zephaniah 3.17. It kind of marries this imagery together and, and, and just reinforces and harmonizes what we, with what we're hearing in the psalm. It says, this is Zephaniah, in case you're curious. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The NASB just straight up says, a victorious warrior in place of a mighty one who will save. It says, so he's this mighty warrior. He's, he's victorious. And it says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. <laughs> We've got this warrior who's singing and rejoicing. This is Jesus who's glad. Yes, he's angry with his enemies. Yes, he has indignation every single day towards unrepentant folk. But towards his beloved bride, there's this gladness and this rejoicing that he has is beautiful. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you think of Jesus that way as someone who's singing with the sword in hand and all the might and all the splendor and majesty, and yet he's not stoic. He's not like just some super reserved formal. He's singing. He's rejoicing. Is it not beautiful to look at this aspect of Jesus, our Messiah, our King, and as we'll see, our husband? Such intimate way that he relates to us as his, his bride, his queen, his princess. Isaiah 61, 1 and 3, it's just another verse at all. This is really kind of what I'm after this morning. I'll, I'll, I'll explain in a second. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 3. We just read moments ago about God anointing this Messiah with the oil of gladness. Listen to Isaiah 61, 1 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Messiah speaking the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor to grant to those who mourn in zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit so the messiah has this oil of gladness running over him and he's sharing it. He's anointing his people with it. He's giving them the oil of gladness so that they can share in his gladness. The Messiah is glad and his people are glad in him. They're catching the runoff down off of Aaron's beard, as it were. They're, they're with him. They're, they're close to him. The oil of his gladness is not something that just leaves them unaffected it touches them he shares it he gives it he makes his people glad and I, that's kind of really what i'm after this morning that was the effect of this psalm upon my own soul it just made me so glad that i'm actually related to this king with the kind of relationship that he looks at me and he's not just disappointed by my failure all the time. He's glad about me. He loves me. And church, do you actually believe that is true about you? I hope you do. I hope as we read these unfolding verses that you will just catch a sense as the Spirit ministers this word to your heart with faith that you can be so glad in this Savior so glad to be joined to him, so glad to be brought into this intimacy and fellowship with him. Verse 7, we'll continue. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We move into verse 8. It says, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes, and cassia from ivory palaces stringed instruments make you glad <laughs> again we've got this king here he's he's just enjoying music 
He's glad. He's hearing the sound of stringed instruments coming from ivory palaces. Multiple ivory palaces. But I just love how the under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this human author is sitting here and he's marshalling forth all of our our senses. He's speaking with sensory language. This is not just floating out. They're all esoteric and spiritual and removed. But he's saying, just smell. Smell the smells coming off of this robe. It says your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. I don't know what those things smell like, guys. I don't know what myrrh smells like. Maybe if you're Catholic, they had myrrh and stuff inside of Catholic churches. But whatever these smells are, it's not just some bloody, dirty warrior sweaty from the battle, but he's got robes and they smell wonderful. And the Holy Spirit writes a song, a love song, where he's inviting his people in to say, just imagine, let your senses be carried away by this thought. Picture the robes of the Messiah, fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. He's appealing to the sense of smell. And he's appealing to the sense of sound. And he's saying, guys, there's music here. There's music and the best music. It's not trash. It's not pop music. It's not top 40. It's heavenly music that the king himself, he hears it, and it's making him glad. It's a celebratory occasion. There's good, lively, celebratory music happening in this scene that's emanating from ivory palaces. I I can't picture what that looks like. It makes me think of what Jesus says in my Father's house. There are many mansions. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you that you may be with me where I am. Now, Jesus doesn't say that they're ivory mansions, but if we put two and two together, we get this picture that's just, it's too much. That this is your future if you are in Christ. Stringed instruments and ivory palace and fragrant robes and we'll go on. But guys, you can't read this and be like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) I couldn't. (laughs) I was messed up with joy. I've never been seized by such a sense of joy intermingled with fear. I just felt like it's too much. This is too much, Lord, that this is what awaits me in my future. By faith, this is actually what awaits me in my future. As his beloved bride, I get to see this kind of stuff and smell this kind of stuff and hear this kind of stuff. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you do too. Can you say hallelujah? What a glad future awaits us. Oh, but verse 9, we'll move on from these fragrant robes and this stringed music and this gladness of the Messiah. Verse 9 says, this is where we pivot from looking at the king to looking at his, his people, his bride in relation to him. It says, you see that, it says, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir this was where reading it for me listen guys I've read this psalm a handful of times in my years as a Christian I've just never saw it the way I saw it (laughs) I I just asked the simple question, and I didn't have a new King James spoiling the answer for me, telling me this is about the Messiah and his bride. I just asked the question, who's the queen? You know who the queen is, right? It's the church. The queen is standing at the right 
hand, this position of extreme honor, the place Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And here we see this picture that Hebrews 1 tells us is about the Messiah. And it says there's this queen. Who's the queen of the king? It's the king's bride. It's the church. The queen, you and I, at the right hand, standing in these adornments of gold, of of fear. I mean, you you know what it says in, in, in the in the psalm. I'm turning in my notes here. I don't even know where I am. Psalm 16, verse 11. Where's their fullness of joy? Psalm 16, 11. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where the queen's standing. That's where you and I who are saved by grace are standing at the place where there's pleasure forevermore. (laughs) At the place where there's fullness of joy. The queen standing there, this position of honor. And I don't want you to get all tripped up here. I mean, this this, this psalm has its difficulties. I didn't want to sit here and avoid it because of its difficulties. But the difficulties kind of arise or could arise in your mind when you look at it, just seeing how there's, okay, there's this cast of characters. It's like, okay, there's daughters of kings that are your ladies of honor. Then there's the queen in gold of Ophir. Then, uh, you know, you go down in uh, verse 13. It says, okay, now there's a princess. And then there's these virgin companions. I don't want to press the the imagery too hard here, but I think it could be resolved somewhat simply by just referring to one single verse that will show us kind of a more specific, fleshed out um, identity of the bride of Christ and how there is a multitude encompassed when we're thinking about the bride of Christ. So we could look at the queen and the daughter and the princess and the virgin companions that are all present in this psalm and just sort of lump them into all one in the same constituting this big gathering of honored, all sp- spoken of as, as, as women. God relates to his people in that way. Nations are, co- are considered, you know, she, Jerusalem, she, uh, the harlot, Babylon. He, he talks about nations and big groups of people as her. But let me read you the verse that will just sort of resolve this to help you see that it, it's, it's all one in the same. I think my present understanding as a likes to say, kind of get out of jail free card, my present understanding, I might change my mind eventually, but listen to what it says here in, where is it, pardon me while I look in my notes for the part from Revelation that refers to the new Jerusalem, okay, here we are, Revelation 21, 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21, 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So this bride, queen, princess, virgin companions, I think they're just all poetic ways of talking about the same big company, the new Jerusalem prepared like a bride. So I hope that kind of lets you rest easy and not think, does the Lord have multiple women that he's marrying here? No, there's one people of God. There's not, oh, he's going to marry you know, ethnic Israel, and then he's going to have this other kind of ceremony for the bride of Christ. There's this guy, this is a bit tangential, but (laughs) there's this guy, Kim Riddlebarger, that I really like. He says, I don't espouse replacement theology. I, whereby, in case you don't know about what that means, it's where people say that 
the church has replaced Israel. So you could say maybe the princess has replaced the queen. He says, I espouse expansion theology, whereby Israel just absorbed a whole bunch of Gentiles and got a lot bigger. I like that. That's my present understanding right now, that the princess and the queen are, are existing as one. There's no rivalry between the queen and the princess and who's who, who's going to get to marry the Messiah. They're both one and the same. Don't let the, the multiplicity of characters here kind of trip you up and get you confused or anything like that. How are we doing on time? Let me take a sip of water. Oh my goodness, it's 1046 already. Yeah, there you go. Hear, O daughter. This is the first, we're in verse 10. This is the first sort of command that we're, we're given in an imperative. It says, hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord, bow to him. We got just this rapid list of commands. Hear, consider, incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house. And then it says, the king will desire your beauty when you do this. Since he is your Lord, and then it says, bow to him. This bride, for all the gold that she's decked in, for all the rejoicing over her and all her honored position, she is not too puffed up and enamored with her own beauty that she does not bow before her king and Messiah. There is a deference and a beauty. You might think of where it says in the New Testament that God looks at this quiet, gentle spirit inside of the inner woman, in the inner man, and he says, oh, this is a precious thing in God's sight. When this sort of inner beauty is present, this beautiful bride of the Messiah is not too fancy to bow. I mean, have you ever been to, tell me, really, have you ever been to a wedding ceremony where the bride took a knee? and bowed before her husband? Could you even picture it? We would be a little bit like jarred by that. Be like, this strikes me a little strange. Patriarchy vibes. I don't know. This is just strange. But this is actually just a beautiful thing in the sight of God. And it's a beautiful, it says, the king will desire your beauty. Time is going to fail us, but what a, what a thing I, I know what it feels like, guys. I, 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 you, as a Christian, feel sometimes probably hyper-aware of your shortcomings, your sins, your flaws, and you feel like that Shulamite women in, 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 in Song of Songs, and you're just saying, I'm dark. Don't look at me. I've been in the fields. I've been keeping the vineyards. I haven't even kept my own vineyard. I'm all sunburned. You feel like, God, what do you want? What do you even want to do with me? How can you? How can I believe that the King will desire your beauty? What beauty? I'm a mess. I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. We're used to thinking like that. We could be very pious to talk like that and kind of just debase yourself and whip yourself and say, "I'm a wretch. I'm a wretch. I'm a chief of sinners." And I get it. Yes, that's good. But the King will desire your beauty. There is another side to this thing that's so joyous and glad. And I think we give God glory by just leaning into, He loves me. He, he really does love me. I don't have to walk around and be like pseudo-spiritual by just beating myself up all the time and saying, I'm trash, I'm trash, I'm wicked. <laughs> the King will desire your beauty. Can you believe that about yourself, Christian? Can you lean into that? Can you, by faith, accept that? Verse 12 says, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of people. 
I'm just going to kind of skip over some of this stuff because we're running out of time. All glorious, verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. You see the queen there has gold of Ophir, the princess in her chamber. She's got gold going on too. Then in verse 14 it says, In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following beside her with joy and gladness. That's the theme of this psalm. I hope it's the theme that's ringing in your heart. Hopefully as we think about these things, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. These robes, this clothing, this gold, this dignity. I do want to just camp here for just a second as we close because I think the New Testament gives us some, some, some helpful thoughts on this. I'm just going to kind of make a, a case for both. I mean, I can go two directions here. What are the robes that this, this beautiful bride is wearing? Is it the, just the robes of the imputed righteousness of Christ? Is it just, hey, he bought the wedding dress? I'm chilling. I don't got to do nothing. Or is there something where, let me just read. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Yes, hallelujah. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Then Psalm 132.16 says, Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. That's the Lord speaking about Zion. He's going to do it. So there's a real sense in which the robes, they've been bought and paid for. But let me just read you something else. This is interesting. This is stirring. This is challenging. This is motivating. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I do glory. I'm glad for that preacher's meeting that you had before where you talked about how different people can sometimes take the imputed righteousness. And you might have, if we want to view the, the bride engagement period uh, motif and just you think of a bride who says, he loves me anyway. He's going to marry me guaranteed. While I'm engaged, might as well just chill. I got nothing I got to get ready for. He's rich. He loves me no matter what. I'm just going to eat Ben and Jerry's and watch Netflix and flirt with random other guys because he made a commitment to me. Friends, that's a really bad way to think about it because Revelation 19 says, it was granted to her. Yes, it's granted to her. It's him who is at work in us, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Any time that we even want to do good deeds, it's because he's provided the motivation by the marvel of regeneration. 100%. But it says it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. While we're engaged, while we're waiting for the wedding day, we're getting ready. We're clothing ourselves. He's paid for it. He's given us the motivation for it. He's given us that day on the calendar. You don't know the day. You don't know the time. So get what, guess what? <laughs> you don't got to get ready if you stay ready. You just stay in a state of readiness. You say he can come back any minute. I'm going to keep my weight under control for picture. I'm going to get in trouble with ladies. But <laughs> the wedding day's coming. The dress is there and you're ready. You're getting yourself ready. And there's these righteous deeds, righteous deeds for which, I mean, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What time is it? It's 10.55. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> let's just not. 
hit this thing too hard. But friends, I I just hope I'll I'll just touch this one last thing. We have an everlasting kingdom that's on the horizon. We have the singing Messiah rejoicing over us with singing. We've got beautiful robes. We've got to get ourselves ready. And I just, the the thing that I am hoping for, and I believe that the Lord Jesus is concerned with the same thing, is that his bride walk around during her engagement with some gladness. (laughs) If you hear of your friend, and let's just, for the sake of illustration, say that your friend is not like the cream of the crop. you got a girlfriend, <laughs> uh, 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 one of your lady friends, whatever, and she's not like the most dazzling, beautiful woman in the world. But this absolutely rich, handsome guy has engaged himself to her and then gone on this long journey, and she knows the wedding day is coming. But she walks around, and her face is just downcast. There's a dullness and a boredness about her. She's not all that glad. There's this discrepancy between what is so good, what's going on in the future for her, and what's going on in the present for her. All these little love notes being sent by her rich, handsome, engaged fiancé. But she walks around, and she's downcast. There's no oil of gladness on her face. She's not radiant. She's just always kind of bummed out. I want the bride of Christ to be glad, and I believe that the Lord Jesus wants the bride of Christ to be glad that he is concerned with your joy. Let me just read a couple verses from our handsome, gracious-lipped Messiah. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 16, 20. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. John 16, 22, just two verses later. Therefore, you too have grief now but I will see you again. It's a guarantee. And your heart will rejoice and no one is going to take your joy away from you. Joy, joy, joy. John 16, 24. And then I'll close. John 16, 24. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. There's joy. There's oil of gladness to be had in the Christian life. I hope and pray that there will be something sealed to your heart this morning that reminds you, oh yeah, he's engaged to me. He's given me a ring on my finger and he's told me, you're going to be with me where I am. And if you're lost this morning, I would just ask you to look at the twofold things. The warning here that he's a warrior and he's not indifferent towards enemies so there is absolutely the presence of pain and a threat there but there's also a pleading and a saying come to this wedding banquet this feast this joyous occasion in ivory palaces prepared by this messiah with stringed instruments don't because of unbelief forego and turn down and decline such an invitation because the penalty for such a decline is not just the foregoing of a good thing, but it's the certain condemnation of a bad thing. The arrow will sink into your heart and you will be under the just punishment of this beautiful, handsome, but warrior Messiah. Come to him and be glad forever. And if you're already a Christian, be glad right now for what awaits you. Guaranteed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these things are too wonderful for us. We, unless your spirit stirs and quickens and makes us really believe this, It's going to feel so far off. 
It's like, that's for somebody else. It's not for me. Lord, please be near even now with affirming and assuring and giving some fresh anointing of the oil of gladness to those that are surely your people in this room. That weary pilgrims, a downcast bride, might have her countenance lifted and her heart cheered with this love song letter from the Messiah addressed to not just a big old mass of people, but individual people composing the new Jerusalem. Lord, we want to glorify you by being glad. Help us even in the singing, Lord, that we would sing these songs like we're really saved, like we're really engaged to the most rich, the most handsome of the sons of men. Help us, Spirit of God. We thank you for this time looking at this glorious, pleasing theme from Psalm 45. Apply it to our hearts in a special way by the power of your Spirit and be glorified in your people, your bride. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.